Before we dig too deep into the message, I've just got a number of announcements to make. One, uh, Pastor Paul, we prayed for Marlia. He mentioned uh, about her kidney transplant. It was somewhat unexpected last week. And some of you want to find a way to help and give financially. Josh and Marlia have something set up called, it's through an organization called Angel of the World. And what we'll do is we'll just send out a church-wide email on that link. If you don't get our normal emails, would you please tear off the bulletin and just write your name and your email address, and we'll send this email to you if you want it. And it's a way that you could give a tax-deductible gift towards what they're doing. Um, Getting a kidney even with insurance is a very expensive ordeal, uh, as you could probably imagine. She's got to live out there for four to six weeks um, and do everything from there, plus make house payments here and you know, that whole deal. So, you know, imagine going on vacation for six weeks um, and, you know, nobody, you, no one goes on vacation for six weeks. It's too expensive, you know, and, but that's something that they have to do. They just have normal living expenses there. Also, um, Mike Cochran is here. He sings up on stage with us. Mike, will you wave your hand? Are you, where are you, Mike? He's back there. And he is going out there tomorrow. My, uh, Marlia is his daughter-in-law. And so um, if, you, uh, if you just want to, like, we sent out an email. If anybody had gift cards or anything like that lying around that they wanted to give to them, um, he could take that with them. Okay, also, i got a whole little host of announcements to give, and then we're going to get into the Word this morning. Um, children's workers. We've just had an amazing children's department for probably, you know, the last, how long have you been leading the children's department, sweetie? 13 years. My wife's been leading it for 13 years. It's been great. It's wonderful. Um, we've had a few parents who said, you know, uh, we've been, they've served faithfully for 10 years, and they said, wow, you know what, I just got to go with my kid over to youth ministry, which is an amazing thing. It's great. Um, but we're down a couple volunteers, and we could always use some of those. So if you're interested in that, God is leading in your life, talk to my wife, Desiree. Um, she would love to talk with you about that. Women's retreat coming up. So um, after service today, we're doing everything inside because we have great air conditioning and there's an excessive heat warning, and we don't want to be out there in the heat as much as we have to. So there's sign-ups for the Union Rescue Mission um, deal that we're doing in a couple weeks here, uh, and so it's in the back, and then Desiree will have sign-ups or paper for the uh, women's retreat, and we'll do snacks over here. Whew. All right, that's all the announcements. Also, if you need a Bible, that's all the announcements except for one. If you need a Bible, you don't have a Bible— um, just raise your hand. We have ushers that will bring them to you. If you don't have a Bible at home and you're like, man, I could use a Bible, take this home, put, it, put your name on it. It's yours. Keep it. If you have a friend that needs a Bible, take it to them. Okay. All the announcements are done. Good morning. There we go. Should have said that first. Last week, we um, started in this series called Bold is Love, and we looked at this idea that God's love for humanity was a really bold action. And that when Jesus came, he constantly went to the people who didn't deserve. And we went over what it meant to deserve God's love. And there was this purity scale. And only certain people fit into it. And they, they, there was this guy who said, I don't deserve for you to come to me. And then Jesus consistently went to people who were off that purity scale. Including prostitutes, including you know, people that were sick, women um, who were somewhat off the purity scale of the time. Jesus consistently went to the less deserving of the time. And that we need to develop that courage that Jesus had. I think someone as a church, we need to be courageous people. We need to be bold people. We need to have that courage within us. 
Last week I made the point that courage is not simply a virtue. It's not just one of the virtues like, okay, we've got to develop this, 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 and this, and courage. Courage is what happens when your virtues are tested. It's that point in which you say, yeah, I really believe this, so I'm going to go forward. Or it's that point where you back off. And we made the point last week that uh, even Pontius Pilate had courage to an extent, except for when it was tested by all the other Jews, and he backed off. His courage wouldn't allow, his courage only allowed him to go so far. He was only courageous until it was risky for him. And are we that kind of people? Are we only courageous until it gets risky for us, and then we go, ah, I don't know, I'd rather not touch it on that territory? Or are we the type of people who are courageous? Remember, we're starting this series of Romans 1.16 that simply says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation. A couple weeks ago, actually this last Tuesday, I was at Montclair Skate Park, and I was just skating around and stuff like that, like I do, and trying not to hurt myself. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm always the oldest guy there. And, and so they're always like, this, who's this old guy coming in? And, and I'm still fairly young. Um, but there's this kid just sitting on the bench. He's the, he's the age of the other kids there. And he just said to this kid, I mean, you, you think of street preachers sometimes when you see them as crazy or something like that. They're shouting. But it was the most awesome thing I've ever seen. He was just gentle with these other kids. He was their age. And he goes, hey, you know what? I was really into weed. I was really into drugs. I was really into all this stuff. And, I said, and he said, then I started going to this church and I found out that there's a God that loves me. And he's telling these kids, and a couple kids left because they're like, oh, God, talk, I'm bailing out of here. Um, but this other kid sat there and was just in, in love with And so I'd skate over there and li- kind of listen to what they were saying. And I was so proud of this kid. By the time I left, I was going to talk to him, but he was already gone. Um, I, I didn't want to interrupt what was happening because it was awesome. Do we have that type of courageous love where we would just share who we are with people? Just share that we love Jesus because our world doesn't really like that that much. So are we courageous people? Are we not ashamed of the gospel? And I think for the church, one of the things I want to sandwich today in is this understanding of culture and where the church is in the broader area of culture. You know, probably some of you could have realized the, the world has changed, and we're not 100 years old like Evelyn Maynard was, but some of us have realized, even in our lifetime, the, the world has changed a lot. There's a lot of changes happening in this world. You know, imagine um, 1906. Um, th- imagine saying, oh, one day I'm going to fly to Hawaii. You know, when the Wright brothers are crashing their airplanes at Kitty Hawk. You know, imagine that conversation. That just wouldn't have happened. And all of a sudden there's transcontinental airplane travel just a couple of decades later. Imagine looking at the stars and thinking, oh man, wouldn't it be great? to go to the moon, and just a couple of decades later, you have Neil Armstrong setting foot on the moon. Our world has radically changed in just a couple of of years. This last century has been the largest change ever. In church, here's how some of it's changed. So it used to be the, the pastor had this significant amount of authority in people's lives. So it used to be where the sermon that the pastor preached was published in the newspaper the next day. It was, just, it was just a standard thing. It was like, oh, Pastor so-and-so, here was his message. It was in the newspaper. Everybody read the newspaper, right? I mean, we, go, we throw ours online. You could podcast it, a little plug right there. Um, you could podcast it and, and listen to our sermons, but it's not like forced on everybody like the newspaper used to be. It was just a standardized thing. 
It used to be that the Bible had so much more authority. And you'd have Billy Graham standing up in his crusades. And what would he say? The way he would preach and prove a point is, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Over and over and over and over and over again, you hear him say, the Bible says. But that authority is now gone. When you think about it, you can't go stand up in a room full of atheists. And I've been in these rooms before because those are my people. I love talking with those people. And say, oh, this is what the Bible says. So like, well, prove that the Bible has any authority in my life whatsoever. You actually can't use the Bible to, bru- to prove biblical points. You have to go around other means. Because our culture is changing. We are in an ever-changing culture. The church today has more in common with a church in exile than it does, like when, so let's go back in ancient Israel. David, the king of Israel, united both kingdoms, had all power, all authority. The church had more in common with David maybe a hundred years ago than it does today. Today, the church has more in common with Daniel in, in Babylon or with the Israelites that were pushed out, conquered, and moved on, lost a ton of battles, and moved on to, to Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. That's what the church has more in common with today than anything else. And we have to recognize that place in Scripture, or that place in history, that place where we are in our lives, if we're going to reach out to people boldly, because we have to understand it doesn't work anymore just to be like, okay, guys, the Bible says this, and this is what you need to do. Back in the day, I went to Cal Poly Pomona before, um, back in the day, 10, ten years ago. Um, 10 years ago, I graduated from Cal Poly. Um, but uh, about probably 12 years ago, and I had a Campus Crusade. I love Campus Crusade. I did a couple things with them. Um, but they trained people in an evangelism method that I would never train anybody in. And they came up to me, and they started asking me question after question after question after question. And consistently, I answered their questions. I knew exactly what they were doing. They're great people. I love them. But they never asked me. They never bothered to find out I was a Christian, and I was working at a church. And so they came to me, and they asked me all these questions, and they said, well, would you agree? And I was like, yeah, of course I'd agree. And they asked me if I wanted to accept Jesus, and I was like, oh, absolutely not. And they were like, whoa, but you agree with all this stuff. Why wouldn't you accept Jesus? I was like, well, I'm already a Christian. Like, do you re-accept Jesus? And they were like, oh. I said, yeah, you never asked me if I was a Christian first. You know, this, that, that's not, your method fit more properly with the church maybe 60 years ago than it does now. And so they've changed actually that method even, even now because our culture is changed, but the church has taken a little bit of time. Um, you know, just some, some statistic here, statistics here. Um, in uh, 1948, 91% of America said that they're some sort, of, some sort of breed of Christian, including Catholic, that they follow Jesus. 91%. Two years ago, in the last, I'm sorry, Five years ago, in the last census, I, for some reason, 2012, I'm stuck in 2012. The world was supposed to end, and I'm stuck there. Um, Mayans got it all wrong. Um, so, so five years ago, in the 2010 census, uh, that number is down to 70%. And even what most commentators have said is that that question was very liberally asked, like, not do you attend church, but what do you associate with? And so the number is probably even lower is what most uh, statisticians will tell you in that. And you think 71%, that's still pretty good, but dropping 20% when that number, each percentage represents millions of people, that's a huge number. 
of people that don't identify with the church anymore or with Jesus. It's huge of people that don't identify anymore. So that number is going down, and we've certainly lost this authority in culture. Part of it is the church fought battles, and a lot of these battles were the way that the world fought battles, and we created enemies. Because when you fight, what do you create? Enemies. And so the church created enemies, and they started collecting enemies over and over and over and over and over again. And so now we're in a posture where what the church has to say doesn't matter, but we have the most important message in the world. We're in this posture now where what, what we have is this amazing sense of love and joy that, that God wants to give to each person, and, and nobody wants to hear us anymore. And so we have to realize that the church and culture, everything has changed so much over the last 115 years. It's crazy. I mean, people write huge volumes of books just about these last 100 years and how much it's changed. I had this whole point about how Albert Einstein changed everything, but I'm going to keep going because probably none of you care about Albert, good old Albert. Anybody care? No. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Perfect. So I was like, if one person, then I'm going to go into it. Okay, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. As you're turning there, he created the theory of relativity. Ha, I'm going to get you anyways. Theory of relativity, which partly said that there is no absolutes anymore, and that filtered into philosophical thought, and so the, the loss of um, absolutes happened partially because of that. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 29. So to understand an exiled church, we have to look at the people in exile. Jeremiah writes this letter to these people who were, who were carried off by Nebuchadnezzar and thrown into exile in Babylon. And so he writes this letter to them, and the entire letter is really uh, fascinating. I encourage you to read all of Jeremiah 29. Um, but he writes this letter to them, and, and he ends up saying this. And by the way, first point in your, in your tear-off, not tear-off, it's an insert. There's a lot of stuff for these sermon series. In your insert. In a world where we are exiled, we need to embody shalom. And I'm going to talk about shalom for a minute and what that means. So he writes this to the people of Israel who are in a faraway land, who are exiled from their land, from their God, from everything they knew. Jeremiah 29, 7, it says, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Um, if it prospers, you too will prosper. I think in this little section, Jeremiah 29.7, and there's so much more there, but we can't focus on it all today. This little verse offers so much advice to a church in exile. Seek the peace and prosperity and pray. First of all, they set this up for pastors like crazy. Peace, prosperity, pray. Three P words. But we're going to focus on peace today. First, the word peace is shalom. And in, in the Hebrew, it means so much more than you could ever say in English. It's, it's partly a greeting, but it means so much more. The peace of God. And it really goes back and, and, and hearkens back and looks back at creation at that very moment in the garden. And so it starts, um, number one, peace with God. If you have a fill in the blank there, it's just the word is God. And this is a right understanding that Yahweh, or, or Jesus, is Lord, is Lord. Shalom, or peace, B, 
begins by understanding the peace that can be made between you and God in your life. So that's the first area of shalom. So when Jeremiah says work for the peace of the city, he's saying work for, he's obviously talking in Hebrew, so he says work for the shalom of the city. In other words, work to reconcile your relationship between God and you. You're in exile for a reason. You were arrogant. You were haughty. You did things you shouldn't have done. You, you treated these things of God flippantly, and you were t- carried off into exile. So peace with God. Number two is peace with humanity. And see, we have to remember there's three core relationships in the garden. And Shalom sort of points back to those three core relationships being in harmony with one another. First is man and God. Second is humanity and humanity. There was a, what was there in the, in the first, uh, in the first uh, relationship? What was it? Marriage, right? The first relationship was a marriage between Adam and Eve. And so it's peace among humanity. In a Hebrew mind... Um, shalom is when humanity has a right relationship with each other. And what does that entail? It entails working for the justice and, and, and the equity of each person. It means that relationships are restored when they're broken. Um, shalom means peace. It also means the absence of violence, but it means peace in like a state of being. And the concept of shalom recognizes that you must have peace with yourself in order to have peace with other people. And so when God is saying, work for the shalom of the city, work to have peace with me first. And then have peace with your fellow human beings. You're in a faraway land. You can't afford to have wars over there. Work to have peace with them. Work to have peace, you know, for a church in exile. We need to work on this. We need to work to be a church of shalom to the, to the community, to the world. We need to, off, we need to have, have that to offer. And then third, the third relationship in creation, and that also encompasses this idea of shalom, is with creation. It goes back to this idea that God created man, he created this garden, and man was to till the garden, man was to work the garden, man was supposed to steward over all the plants and animals and things like that. This concept of shalom means that all three of these relationships are in check. So in in this Hebrew mind, Um, it would have been this understanding that God provides for humanity through the land, through animals, through things like that. And so you need to steward that wisely. And that could even become a point for these Jews of evangelism to their fellow human beings and to show them the way of Yahweh. So they were in a city in Babylon, which was dark. And if you read the book of Daniel, you'll see this guy Nebuchadnezzar who thought the world of himself, thought of himself as a god. And many times you read the Old Testament and you, you read like in the third year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, that's because they restarted the calendar at year, you know, when he became king. And the third year, it was year three. In the third year of whoever, they, they were so arrogant that they, the world and time revolved around them. So they were in this wicked city. And what God said to his people is, you need to be shalom. You need to be the peace. You need to be my peace. You need to show that off to the world. So, so show that to other people what that looks like. Peace with your creator. Peace with fellow human beings and peace with creation. Show what that looks like. And obviously when man sinned, all these relationships were broken. Right? The curse kind of shows all of it. First of all, man's not allowed back in the garden. It's sort of separation between him and God. Um, the relationship becomes strained. It talks about that in Genesis chapter 3 between man and wife. 
And then the ground becomes hard to work and unproductive, and you, need, and you only work by the sweat of your brow. It becomes difficult. So in our sin, all these three pieces of shalom are broken, but in Jesus, they're restored to us. Therefore, we have the ability now to be shalom to a world that desperately needs the peace of God. This is what was going through the Hebrew mind when Jeremiah says, work for the peace and prosperity of the city. This little band of people who have reverence for God, who respect everything around them and respect their portion of the earth, was supposed to turn around this land that they were in. They were in a foreign land with people that believe foreign things. See, Jesus conquered sin and death to restore us shalom to restore what was broken in the garden. And we get to be the people, the mission of God is that we get to be the people that get to bring that back to the world. That's what the church is. That's what all of Scripture says, is that we get to be the people that carry that shalom back to the world. So if we're going to be bold as love, I want to offer a couple of ways in which we have to do that. So in the next point, in a world where we are exiled, we need to put our fears or fears in God's hands. So if you only have one fear, write fear. If you have multiple, write fears with an S. See, I think this is really important because in a world in exile, we're almost, or in a church in exile, we're almost afraid to speak up. We're almost afraid to say anything. I don't know if many of you saw it this last week, but um, Matt Chandler is a pastor in uh, Texas. Uh, a video of his went viral on abortion and what he thinks about abortion. And... That's a great example of just saying, I'm not going to be afraid. And he's got a mega church. People could have just left the church over this. He said, I'm not afraid. I'm just going to say it. And, he's, and if you haven't seen it, it's all over Facebook. It's, it's really an incredible video where he talked about the dignity of life. And so we need to be able to put our fear in God's hands so that we can say bold things, so that we can be bold people. I want to go back to this verse, Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. See, it says where you, essentially saying where you place your security, that's what you'll get your security from. So if you place your security, your confidence in Jesus, where do you think your confidence is going to come from? Jesus. Absolutely, it's going to come from Jesus. Next, John 14, 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching." My Father will love them, and, he will, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So what Jesus is saying is, if you place your love and trust in me, I will come to you physically and, and, and build my home with you. So we have this notion of like, man, we're afraid to say stuff. We're afraid to speak out. We're afraid to, to, to you know, like I was having a conversation with... Um, this uh, professor at Duke a couple weeks back, I was at a conference in Boston, and, and this professor was going on and on and on about institutional racism and things like that. And I said, listen, can I tell you something as a white middle class guy? And she goes, yeah. I said, I don't know when I'm being racist anymore. I was like, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm a racist person. I really try not to be. That's not my goal. Like, I think I believe in equality, absolutely. And when I hear racism, it's like, oh, it's disgusting to me. I said, but I don't know what if I'm saying is offensive anymore to anybody. Like, I can't censor everything I say and put it through, like, is, you know, is it racist? Or is it, is it sexist? Is it, 
you know, something, something, something. And she goes, yeah, we kind of created that problem, didn't we? <laughs> you know, and I was like, yes, you did, professors. Um, and, and um, gosh, where was I going with this point? Oh, yeah, fear. Um, my point is, the world that we live in has created so much fear and anxiety over what we say that sometimes we're just silent. They've created so much fear and anxiety over what we say and what we believe that we're just silent. We might be offending somebody, so we're just silent. Well, one of the truths that the church needs to come to grips with is that the gospel is intrinsically offensive. And I don't like that. I wish it wasn't offensive, but, I mean, they, they killed Jesus. Okay, they crucified the guy. They killed him. When the, everybody had the opportunity to, to pick between Barabbas, the guy who had led a revolution and who was involved in some murder, and Jesus, they said, oh yeah, kill Jesus. The gospel is offensive. It's not our job to add to the offense. It's not our job to take away from the offense. But the gospel is intrinsically offensive, that people, humanity, are sinful. That's offensive. Go try telling that to somebody. That used to be a universal truth 100 years ago that everybody agreed with, that humanity is sinful. Not everybody thinks that way anymore. Somehow we need to take the boldness and the offense of the gospel and translate that into a world so that people still, we still have people's attention, that people can still hear us. So one thing we need to do is we need to put our fear in God's hands. I think sometimes we're so afraid and even my statement to this professor of like, hey, I don't know when I'm going to be judged as, as a racist or a sexist or, you know, white privilege or male privilege or, or you know, um, even I'm hearing the term straight privilege coming out more. And like, I don't know when these terms are going to be applied to me, so I don't even know if what I say is offensive or not. So sometimes I just shut up. So can you help me with that? So fear of what to say, by the way, which is created by this culture that we live in. So I think if, you know, you have this fear, I think we need to place that in God's hands and say, Lord, we need to be so connected with the Lord that he speaks through us. So we say, God, we pray that you would use, that your word would speak through us, that you read the word of God, that you hear from it and use that word. And we could talk to culture gently and nicely and kindly. But we don't have to be afraid because Jesus is with you. So that's quick point on fear. Again, I, you know, we could go hours on fear. Our culture, our world sells it. I mean, mo- mainly our 24-hour media operates on the premise that people are afraid and that they could sell more news to you if you're afraid. So, and so they work up this, you always see breaking news and it's fearful, something's coming. So they, we operate on fear. We need to overcome that. Next point. In a world where we are exiled... We need to live with all of our faith present. We need to live with all of our faith present. And what does that look like? Who did that best in the gospel? Who did that best in the story of Scripture? One of the points I want to make here is Acts 18 mentions Paul. And we're not going to read into it right now. Um, I'd recommend a full reading of Acts, obviously. But, um, but, you know, make a quick note. Acts 18 is the only place really where it mentions Paul as his other profession, which is a tent maker. And many of us in the Western world have said, oh yeah, 
Paul wanted to do missions, but he also made tents as a side living so that he could fund the ministry. And we've had entire tent-making ministries that have come up over that. And you have people that are bivocational as pastors, and they, they'll always say, oh, we're tent-making. Well, I want to suggest to you today that that's not why Paul was making tents. Paul was not making tents to make money. In fact, we know that some other churches supported him, and that he probably didn't even need to do that. But why was Paul making tents in Acts 18? It could have been that he needed some of the money. But also, we have to think of the time, who needs tents in those days? There's nobody that's camping in these days. Nobody's like, oh, you know what would be fun? To go rough it. Like, that was their life, was roughing it. And so who needed tents? Military. People who were traveling the world and, and um, like diplomats and things like that. Military, diplomats, merchants. The Silk Road, he's in Corinth at this time. The Silk Road goes all the way from the east right through the port of Corinth. Corinth is known for their silk trade. It goes right through the port of Corinth, and it goes out to the rest of the world. Paul had, in both directions, people he could sell tents to, people who he could give the gospel to. We have to remember that Paul understands here that he's got this time cap in his head. Paul's thinking, oh man, I'm not going to live forever. Jesus is going to come back. I've got to get this message out here. So where does he go? The most strategic location there is, the tent-making business. And he starts, I'm sure, as he does everywhere else, sharing his faith among people that travel the world. We know that some of the earliest church fathers, Tertullian and others like him, were former military. And some of that is even traced back to Paul. And we know they're former military Paul was strategic. He chose a vocation in which he could have the biggest impact in his ministry. And so when he was there, he was a tent maker because he wanted to see the gospel go around the world. So while in in Corinth, he did these things on a regular basis. He was a tent maker and he made um, making missionaries that would go around the world as just part of their normal job. He preached in the synagogue And then he regularly lived his life in the public square. This is what I want to spend the rest of our time on today. For a church in exile, we need to understand what public square ministry is all about. One, we absolutely need to be involved in in local church ministry. I absolutely believe that. That being involved in in children's ministry, youth ministry, music ministry. You probably could tell we've needed a drummer. Thanks, Gilbert, for filling in on the cajon today. But we need, we need a drummer, so if, you know, local church ministry, absolutely. And it's not, it's because Jesus wants to refine you and do something amazing. It's not what you have to give, but what God wants to do in you. That's why local church ministry is so important. But also, we need to understand this idea of public square. And we're going to get into this in Acts 17 in a second. So if you have your Bible flip to Acts 17 and just put your thumb there. We're going to be there in just a moment. Where does most debate happen today? Where does most discourse happen in our world today? Probably Facebook, Twitter. Like in 140 characters or less, solve all the big, world's biggest problems, you know? Probably Twitter, Facebook, blogs, um, things like that. Snapchat, I'm sure the world's problems are getting solved through Snapchat right now. Um, but you know, and also world news, uh, CNN, Fox News, uh, MSNBC, big discussions are happening all around here. Where is our public square these days? You know, places like that, Starbucks, 
places where you can engage in conversation. In the ancient world, in the ancient Greek world, this was like what you did. There was no TV. There was no movies. It was like, let's go to the, let's go to the market and let's hear people have discussions about their philosophies. And contrary to what some might believe, they were actually very smart and well-reasoned and thought-out people. Very smart arguments. See, Public Square Ministry is getting out of your comfort zone and loving people and telling them the truth. So I want us to get this. Um, most of us do ministry in the church, and that is really good, and we need to be involved in this type of thing. We all need that. And there's plenty of ways, like I said, for you to serve here. But is that where Jesus served? Is that where Paul went out and was like, okay, got to serve in the church? Yeah, he helped plant a couple churches, but where do we most frequently see Paul? In the marketplace, in the public square, near heads of state. Prison too, by the way. So if you start doing this, get accustomed to that. Um, Remember, get rid of all fear. That was the point before this point. So Paul, here's the point I want to show you when we get into Acts 17 here. Um, I flipped right past it and went to another 17th chapter. Okay, Acts 17, starting in verse 16 here. Paul is, in, in, in where we are in Acts, uh, Paul is going to all these different places, and he gets into to verse 16. He's in Athens, Greece here. Um, and he says, When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue. See, he went to the synagogue. He reasoned with his people. Those were his people. With both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day. The marketplace day by day. That's where Paul went, the marketplace. With those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul is preaching the good news about Jesus and, and the resurrection. Then they told him, um, then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Aragopagus, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching it is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aragopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar to, with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are, you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he points out something that they already believe, that there's some unknown God. And he says, I know about that. I'm going to tell you about it. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands um, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands god did this so that they oh, i'm gonna i'm gonna pause over this god did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him though he's not far off but he is um, like among one of us see i'm gonna pause there because 
Paul preached in a way that drew people in. He didn't condemn them for all the other gods that they had up. He didn't, I mean, he didn't stand on the street corner and be like, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going. He didn't do any of that stuff like we see some street corner preachers do. Instead, he just preached the good news. He didn't condemn them. He didn't say, you're all terrible people for believing this. He said, oh, clearly you don't know. You usually have this statue to an unknown God. Let me help you understand. See, he was out in the marketplace. He was out in the public square. He was out just saying what he believed. And what happened? He was invited to speak at the largest venue in Greece, the Aragopagus. He didn't go there and say, hey, I have something to say. Can I, can I say something? People said, no, 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 we need to come hear you. We need to hear your point of view. My point is, when you engage in public square ministry, when you're simply just open about your faith and you live with your faith present in every part of your life, and you're, you don't add to the offense of the gospel, and you simply let the gospel speak for itself, you'll be invited into these places to, to share your faith. And, and, you know, and I think God gives you what you can handle in, in your abilities. Um, the, the last year, uh, right around this time, I was invited to be on the panel of a group, and many of you were praying for me, some of you were there. Um, I was on a panel discussion about heaven, hell, and the afterlife with atheists, Buddhists, and spiritualists. And I was the only Christian voice represented. Just because I, I love these people, and I'm willing to, to live some life with them and share with them what I believe, and I don't condemn them, but say, hey, this is the gospel, and I, and I hope you would accept that. And I don't shove it down their throat. We just tell them, Jesus loves you, and, and you know, I'd love for you to consider this. Because Paul didn't do that. You know, we, we look at Paul, you study Paul, he was kind of an angry dude. I mean, but who was he angry towards? It was always the church. It was always us that he was angry towards. You believe this, and yet your behavior is this way? Are you kidding me? That was Paul. With the outside world, he was gentle and kind and nice. And he, he laid out ideas that you could follow and go, oh, he wasn't some religious jerk. He was a nice guy. But he was out in the marketplace. When Billy Graham was invited to speak in Russia, does anybody, I wasn't alive yet. Does anybody remember that? Billy Graham invited to speak in Russia? No? Okay. It happened. So none of you remember that. Because the internet told me so. Um, <laughs> when Billy Graham was invited to speak in Russia, he apparently got all kind of pushback from the church about going to godless commies. That I can't believe you would go to a bunch of godless atheists. Isn't that the point? I mean, that we go share the gospel with people who don't believe? Isn't that the point? See, my point is, if you simply live with your faith present in your life, and you have this joy of the Lord, and you've created this, you, you have this idea of shalom in you. You're working for the peace and prosperity of wherever you're at, whether it's your job, whether it's uh, your, your community, your neighborhood, your, wherever you are at, your school, that you're working for the peace and prosperity of that. I mean, when you have that idea that that, that is shalom, and you live with your faith present, people are going to start coming to you and asking you questions. And you'll have these opportunities. Things will just come up. A couple of chapters later, um, Paul is now in Ephesus, and he is doing kind of the same thing. He's out speaking in the public square. He was invited to speak, and he's out speaking. And the, a riot breaks out 
because of what he said. Some of the town's craftsmen said, hey, people are not buying our idols anymore because they're following this character, Jesus. You know, was, they had a big riot. And the person that came to Paul's defense was the town clerk. Not, you know, some church person. Not anybody like this. He's like, hey. And then he says two things. He goes, one, this guy hasn't stolen anything from us. And two, he has not blasphemed our gods. Well, I'm a Christian. It's my job to blaspheme other people's gods, right? No, it's not. So Paul simply goes up and tells them the truth and says, compare it to your truth. What do you believe? You know, if we really do believe that Jesus is that powerful and has that level of truth, then and Paul had faith that something was going to happen and things did happen. People were, began to believe and follow Jesus. My point is, I think as, as a church, we need to learn in every area of our lives, how do we live with our faith present? One of the things that's changing in our culture, and I'm going to begin to end with this. Begin to end. <laughs> Anyways, one of the things that's happened in our culture is we used to be very comfortable with the idea of silos. My family life is here. My church life is here. This life is here. This life is here. The, the, the millennial generation sees that as completely disingenuous because all of your life isn't silos. It's all one big thing, and you have to incorporate everything into your life. I mean, probably you see that as disingenuous, but we, we tend to do this. Oh, that's my work life. And I, it was my personal life. This is my church life. This is whatever life. And the point I'm trying to make here is Paul lived with all of his faith present in every silo of life. What do you do? Do you live with all of your faith present? Do you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I rest in the shadow of your wings. I could do nothing else but then to live like you. See, if you have a commitment to shalom, if Jesus is truly enough in your life, then it's okay to live with your faith present. But there's this segment of fear that tells you, oh, I can't say that. I I can't do that. What are they going to think of me? When you live with Jesus and when you have this concept of shalom, boldly loving the world becomes easier. Making Jesus attractive with your life becomes easier. It becomes just the most obvious thing to do. So in this series called Bold is Love, I want to challenge you, and I want to be bold with you to challenge you to say, I want to invite you to stand up for Jesus just wherever you're at. You don't have to stand up and be like, oh, you're going to hell. I mean, that's not the way Paul dealt with this at all. That's not the way Jesus dealt with it. We simply preach the gospel. God, Jesus loves and he, he's got a place for you. He, he wants to forgive you of your sins. He wants to reconcile you between God. He wants to reconcile your relationships. He wants to make you new, into a new kind of person. Maybe you're here this morning, and, and you simply need to say, I need to take that next step. I need to be more bold with my life and my faith. And I need to begin to be more bold by living my faith everywhere I go. If that's you today, and if you're like, man, and I, I mean... Band, you could come forward now, and I, I rarely do this um, because I'm more of a preacher and not the, the leader that calls you to, like, tons of things, and I need to be better with that. But if that's you, I just want to invite you to stand. Thanks, Kim. 
If that's you, seriously, I want to invite you to stand right now. And we just, I want to end by a word of prayer over you and say, I'm going to be bold with my life. I'm going to be bold with my faith. If that's, if that's not you, if you're not ready for that, that's okay. Still sit down. But if that's you, we're going to just have a word of prayer. And I just want to invite you to stand with me right now. Um, as we, uh, and don't ask everybody to stand yet, as, as we pray. So would you stand with me? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I want to pray over these folks today who are standing. Lord, they want to live with their faith present in their life. Lord, help us to be a more loving people. God, so many times we, we let anger in, we let all these other things in, but, and, and we're just not loving towards the outside world sometimes. If that describes any of us, Lord, help us to be more loving. Father, help us to be more bold in our proclamation of that we follow you in the world. Help us be more bold with that. Father, if there's anybody here who just has this fear of like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say, Lord, I pray that they would place that fear in your hands. Lord, use this church. Use us to make a bold commitment to love you in our world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.